This episode is brought to you by the Podcast Services Division at Life's Tough Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Life's Tough Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at lifestuff.com or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. Welcome to Life's Tough. You can be tougher. I'm Dustin Plandall, your host. This is a show about life and about purpose. It's about the stories that we all share. And sometimes along the way, well, we get to know who we really are. You know, they say that the only corner of the universe where you can be certain of improving is your own self. Our guest today is Dr. Lawrence Krauss. Dr. Krauss is an American-Canadian theoretical physicist, and he is the founder of ASU's Origins Project now called ASU Interplanetary Initiative, to investigate fundamental questions about the universe. And he has served as the project's director. Let's welcome him on now. Dr. Krauss, welcome to the show. Well, it's nice to be with you, virtually at least. It is a pleasure to have you here. And you know, the name of the show is Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. But before there was you, there was the universe, correct? Oh, absolutely. I believe the universe existed before I did, yes. (laughs) <laughs> so talk about that. I mean, what got you to, to be so fascinated, to commit your life to learning about this thing called the universe and ultimately learning about life? How did this begin for you? I mean, it's an interesting question. I always wonder why people don't ask the alternative. How could you not be fascinated by the universe? <laughs> I mean, each of us looks up at the night sky from when, they're, when we're little and, look, and, and ask the same questions. Are we alone? How do we get here? You know, what's, what's our place in the universe? And those questions have always fascinated me, and I've been fortunate enough to be able to work on them. I think what really got me interested in the possibility of actually doing this stuff for a living was uh, began when I was probably about 11 or 12, maybe a little even a little earlier. But I remember reading a book about Galileo when I was grade five and or six, and um, and I found him a heroic figure at the time, working against you know, working in favor of truth and against the forces of evil. And it seemed to me that scientists were heroes. I haven't seen that since then. But in, in many cases, at that time, it got me excited. And then reading books by physicists. Uh, when I was in high school, I think when I was on a special program for good students in the summer, and um, and the professor gave me or the teacher gave me a, a book by Richard Feynman, which uh, which was the first time I realized that, hey, there are lots of still unanswered questions, that physics wasn't done, all done 200 years ago by dead white men. It was a re- really a dynamic field. And those things combined to, to convince me that it was the sexiest thing you could possibly do. The other thing I should say is that my mother wanted me to be a doctor. Neither of my parents finished high school, and my mother wanted me to be a doctor, my brother a lawyer. And my brother, unfortunately, became a lawyer, <laughs> increasing the pressure on me. Um, and so I wanted to become a doctor when I was younger. And then it took me a while to, re- and my mom convinced me that doctors were scientists. 
And it took me a while before I realized that doctors weren't scientists, but by then I was hooked on science and it was too late. So those are some of the things that, that got me going. And by the way, that's the reason I write books. One of the reasons is that I was turned on by books by scientists and I like to sort of pass that on to other young people now. So your process of writing, you know, somebody has an idea sitting in their head. How do they get it out? How did you get it out? <laughs> well, you know, interesting writing is... It, 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 I never was certain. The problem was that I really liked science, but I was also interested in people and politics and, and that sort of thing. And, and, and the physics I was interested in seemed far removed from humanity. And I was quite interested in history. And, uh, and thankfully, I had a remarkable history teacher when I was younger who really forced me to learn how to write. And uh, that, that was incredibly important. And then what happened as I got older, I found a way to mesh my, my interest in, in humanity, if you wish, and my interest in, in, in the cosmos by writing. Uh, usually when I was younger and in, when I was a graduate student, I would write op-eds when I got mad about something. None of them ever got published, but it would be a way to release my, my, my internal anxiety or anger. And, um, and then what happened is that I, I began to write uh, more uh, when, when, when I was in, intensely interested in something. And, um, and it just evolved. There wasn't a strategy, but it turned out to be remarkable. I was able to combine my interest in science and humanity by combining sort of the careers of writing and public events and, and, and doing TV and that sort of thing and, and physics. Um, I, I had a, a position. The, the final thing was I had a kind of fancy position at Harvard when I, after I got my PhD and uh, it was called the Society of Fellows. And I was supposed, it, it was supposed to be something more than just being a postdoc. And it encouraged me to sort of combine just doing normal physics with something else. And I, I was during then that I actually contracted to write my first book. I didn't, I didn't write it till later, but uh, through a well-known physicist uh, friend of mine, uh, Steve Weinberg, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist and also a wonderful writer, uh, he hooked me up with his publisher and the publisher convinced me to try writing a book. And um, and I put that book aside to write another book, actually, after I wrote a Scientific American article that had captured a lot of interest. So that kind of evolved, again, uh, organically. It wasn't, I didn't plan it. But certainly whenever I'm angry or, or concerned about something, if I, I need to write uh, just, to, uh, just to get it out and be able to concentrate on other things. And, and that still motivates me in my, in my, for my op-ed pieces. And then... Um, the other writing is just kind of a kind of therapy, I think, for me. Now, how did you go and win a Nobel? I mean, there's a lot of smart people in this world, and you are obviously at the top of that list. What did you have to do? I mean, I, you know, I'm going to speak for a generation called the millennials, that we want it, we want it now. And yet your way of doing it, and I have to imagine, was that you had to have been consumed, that it's all it takes is all you got, that when you commit, you go all in. So talk about that. Well, I, look, I think that I tell young people who are concerned about jobs that when you're going to school, do what you enjoy, because if you don't enjoy it, you're not going to you're not going to do a good job. And, 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 you know, people often say that, you know, think that somehow scientists are consumed with saving the world or or doing something like that. And mo the scientists are doing what they're doing because they enjoy it. And if you enjoy it, you're willing to inspect to spend an incredible amount of time intensely working on it. You get passionate about it. And, uh, and what ultimately happens, it, it, at least in my experience in science, is you really don't know the implications 
of what you're doing at the time. You just have to keep plugging away. And it's a very frustrating, often a very frustrating experience. It's not just true in science and true in business and every other area that, that one of the things we don't teach students enough is how to fail effectively. Uh, we, we give them problem sets where they're guaranteed to get solutions and even PhD problems where they are. But in real life, you often are working on a problem, you discover it's the wrong problem and you can't solve that problem. And you have to, you have to work around it and do something else and say, well, the approach I, I developed here can be useful for something else. And you just have to keep plugging away. So often in, in my science, there have been projects where, which seem to be on the verge of failure. And then, and then often you don't even realize that they're relevant for something else and, and the implications of it come later. Uh, it's surprising to me that sometimes I didn't really understand what I was doing when I did it until well after the fact. And so you just have to keep plugging away. And my, my experience is if you keep doing that, as I like to say, planting seeds, some of them will grow. So it sounds like what you're saying is that also the education part is that you can never know everything. Because I do find that many people take the easy route. They'll, they'll watch a TV show and go, oh, okay, got it. That's how the universe was created. And then they, all of a sudden they become an expert. But you've been studying this for decades now. So talk to us. We've had people on the show that come from a faith background that have one way of belief how the universe began. And you have another. So it's not, how not did another it belief. It, how did I, it begin? It's really, it's really important not to use the word belief because that's a, that means nothing, what you believe. It, the, things are either likely or unlikely. And let me just say the approach where people believe they understand how the universe began because they're religious, that's the... See, that's the, the exact opposite of learning. That's the point. The way you, you talked about thinking you know everything. And in fact, assuming you have the answers before you ask the questions is a guaranteed me method for not learning anything. And so what you have to be, realize is that, you know, the questions are important and not knowing is important. Too often parents and teachers are afraid to say, I don't know. And in fact, that's the best thing you can say to a kid. Let's find out, let's question, let's. And so uh, that kind of questioning and then being willing to go wherever the answers take you, wherever nature takes you. So you have a question and you hope you have the answer maybe, but when the actual answer is different, that's okay. You go with the actual answer. That's the wonderful part of science where you not only, if you have a beautiful idea, you try and prove it right, but you try equally hard, as Richard Feynman said, to prove it wrong. And then if it's wrong, you're willing to go with that. And so, sure, we would like to be the center of the universe. We're not. Uh, we'd like to be cosmically significant here on Earth, and we're not. We're in a random planet around a random galaxy in the middle of nowhere among 100 billion galaxies, each containing 100 billion stars. Wow. I mean, that's and, so and hard. We'd like the universe fathom. to have been created for us. Sure, certainly, we all want to believe. We, as Vox Maldar would say, okay? But, but the, the fact is there's no evidence that there's any purpose to the universe. And we have discovered remarkably by questioning nature and allowing our investigations to go wherever nature leads us to an amazing picture of the universe where the reality is so much more interesting than the, than the fairy tales. The universe is almost 14 billion years old, created an incredible hot, intense Big Bang. And we can, and, 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 we can understand the evolution of that universe and then test our ideas with our telescopes and our elementary particle physics accelerators. And we've learned so much about the universe that it saddens me to think that people are willing to, to tune that out because it disagrees with something they quote unquote believe. That's the saddest thing you can imagine. 
we should we should be celebrating these remarkable discoveries, which is why I've written the books I have, because they're the most interesting ideas that humans have ever come up with. That's a fascinating perspective. And so I think what we're seeing in the world right now is that uh, there's a, a lot of claims or at least perception that there are these UFOs uh, flying around the, the, the skies. I mean, well, UFOs, let's talk about UFOs what do you think? they are timely. <laughs> um, UFOs, mean, and now they have a different word for it, but UFOs mean unidentified, unidentified flying object. They don't mean aliens. <laughs> and people tend to think, okay, UFOs equals aliens. And the point is, the least likely explanation, and I mean it, the least likely explanation of any things that have been observed that cannot be explained easily is aliens. As, as, as Richard Feynman said a long time ago, UFOs and, and the, the interpretation of UFOs as aliens is, is um, an example of the, no, the known irrationality of humans rather than the unknown rationality of aliens, hmm. okay? Because anything you can think of is more likely than alien spacecraft coming here and abducting humans and doing weird experiments on them. <laughs> now, do you think that it's likely, though, that there is life throughout oh, the universe? Oh, I think it's extremely likely that there's life in the universe. Uh, I, I suspect we might even find examples of other kinds of life in our solar system, in the oceans of, of Enceladus or, or, or Europa, uh, and, and, and maybe even extinct life, perhaps under the surface of Mars. But... But uh, this is microbial life. These aren't little alien Martian men and women. Uh, these are microbes. And, and it, if you look at the Earth, at least, life began about as soon as it could have on Earth. You, all you appear to need are, are, are sunlight with energy, uh, organic materials, and water. And uh, all of those things are, are ubiquitous throughout the solar system and throughout the universe. And, and we now know that uh, pretty well every star has solar systems around it. There are 100 billion stars in our galaxy. There are probably 100 billion solar systems. It's, it would be remarkable if life didn't exist elsewhere in our galaxy, if not in the universe. That's life. Now, intelligent life is a whole different question because it took about three and a half to four billion years before we life evolved on Earth enough to have the kind of intelligence that could produce technology, uh, or at least technology of the type we're using right now to communicate. And that's a much more that's likely much more rare because you need a kind of isolated system that isn't subject to huge catastrophes over four billion year period etc but i'm willing to believe that even though it's incredibly rare on the scale of life in general that intelligent life exists elsewhere in the universe but the problem is the universe is a big place and even if intelligence exists it will be incredibly difficult uh to to discover it so it's not impossible and it's it's nice that we're we're using techniques like SETI and other techniques to try and listen for evidence of alien signals. But, but the lack of seeing them, uh, as Carl Sagan said, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And, and so the fact that we haven't discovered aliens anywhere else by listening to their signals is not evidence that they're not there. It's just, it's a, it's a hard thing. And I, I think it's so hard, it's gonna be a long shot, even if life exists elsewhere in the universe that we'll ever know about it, which is maybe sad, uh, but, that's the way the cookie crumbles. Now, it, it's, you know, where our destination is next, you, you see a number of these large corporations that are heading out to outer space to, to go do, do their thing from hotels to, to landing on, on planets. Like, how much do we really know about the universe? And talk about the risk associated with that. Well, there's, w let me make one thing clear. There's a lot more we don't know about the universe than we do know. 
That doesn't mean we know nothing. We know an incredible amount. We, what we have learned in the last 50 years, my book, A Universe of Nothing, was really celebrated that. The, the, the revolutions that have taken place in cosmology have been astounding since I was a graduate student. Uh, and, and what we can measure about the universe is amazing. But, but there's still a tremendous amount. We don't know. We don't know how the universe began. We, we have a plausible, plausible ideas about how that could be the case. But exactly what happened at t equals zero, we, the laws of physics break down. And there are lots of interesting ideas about how, how they, you know, they might be resolved, but that's really at the forefront of physics. As I say, we have a plausible extrapolation of what we know to recognize that it's quite likely our universe began spontaneously as a quantum fluctuation out of nothing. But we don't know how it began. We don't know the nature of most of the energy in the universe. Most of the energy in the universe resides in, well, the most of the matter energy in the universe resides in something we call dark matter, something I've been working on for 40 years, most of the mass of our galaxy is not in stars or in hot gas. It's in some form of material, which we think is a new type of elementary particle that we have yet to discover. We're building experiments to look for it. In fact, I propose such experiments and I'm, I'm on one experimental collaboration to look for that. It's not just in our galaxy, but in all galaxies. But even that energy is dwarfed by something much more strange, which again, I was one of the first people to propose was actually out there, something we now call dark energy. 70% of the energy of the universe resides in empty space. That means if you get rid of all the particles and all the radiation and everything and you have empty space, it weighs something. And we don't understand why. It's the biggest mystery in fundamental physics. And so there's a tremendous amount to learn and it's an exciting time because we're building new devices to search for this stuff. Uh, as I say, not knowing, if you're a scientist, in some sense, not knowing is more exciting than knowing because it means there's stuff out there to discover. Well, I, I think it's fascinating that your approach is one where you get to a place to say, I don't know everything. We, we don't know everything, yet you put another group of people say, oh, I, I'm confident. I know exactly how it began to go, but how can you know everything? Well, that's, you know, that's one of the things that often some religious people say, well, scientists aren't humble, they're arrogant. And I often think, well, let's see. What's more arrogant, saying we don't know how the universe began or we don't know what our place is in the universe, but it, it doesn't seem likely that we're significant, or saying, oh, the universe was created for me. Well, what's more arrogant? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of remarkable to me that that, that assumption that you somehow know the, the, that there's a, an intelligent force guiding the universe that you have, and, and you know how it was created is a remarkable remarkably arrogant claim, which we don't make as scientists. Now, energy, what is energy? I mean, is it, <laughs> I, I can't see it, but there are times I can feel it, that something feels, I can meet somebody and go, something doesn't feel right about that person, or you feel connected to somebody, that there's like this invisible field. What well, is that, you know, Doc? I mean, like, what use... is that? Is that me making it up, or is it really there? Yeah, you're making it up. But I mean, the point <laughs> is that... Um, you know, we use a lot of terms in science that you get used colloquially, and they mean very different things. Energy is a, it's actually a very subtle concept, very, very subtle. And so it's not easy to grasp. In its most general form, energy is, is the capability of doing work. If you have energy, in principle, you can do work. That's basically the, the physics explanation. It come, can come in many forms, heat energy uh, uh, is one example, electromagnetic energy, the, the lights, pouring down on me right now. Um, and, then, and then one of the things that Einstein recognized is that mass has energy, that, that basically mass can be converted into energy. So there are all sorts of different types of energy in the universe. And now, as I say, we've discovered that empty space can have energy, and that's a really strange concept. 
um, uh, very strange because it behaves different gravitationally than normal energy. But this notion that people have energy fields or any, I mean, the, all of those kind of pseudoscience things are, are incorrect because we can empirically show they're incorrect in the sense that we could detect with the, what was the Arecibo radio telescope, which used to be in Puerto Rico until it was fell down the, earlier this year, an incredibly large radio telescope. Now the largest one is in China. We could detect, if you want, a, a light bulb on Pluto, the power of a light bulb on Pluto if it was emitting in the right frequencies. And so if people were able to sort of communicate to each other or interact with each other by some hidden exchange of, 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 of energy, we'd be able to measure it easily with the instruments we have. And the fact that we don't means that we can rule out that possibility. Fascinating. And those that watch t these TV shows, you know, kind of gives them like the, the Reader's Digest version. Where do you go and learn more? I mean, I know that you have, you've given your life to study, but where do I begin? Because there's a lot of things I've been indoctrinated about. There's a lot of things that fear, you know, when we talk about fear, right? Fear yeah. will prevent a lot of people who tune into this show from even questioning their own belief to say, well, do some things not make sense? And if they don't make sense, go educate yourself, go well, learn a little bit more. Yeah, confront, you know, fear does get in the way. And I think that being willing to, or being forced in one way or another to confront your own misconceptions is the only way of really learning. That's one of the reasons I wrote a book called The Physics of Star Trek, because science fiction is so many misconceptions that when people confront them and go, aha, you know, what I thought was really true is not. It's, it's, really, it's really invigorating. It's kind of fascinating. But fear of that you might learn something new, it get, does get in the way for a lot of people. Where you can go, well, obviously, I write books for, or, uh, for one reason, uh, hopefully, is to get, I don't expect people to become experts basing on my books, but, but hopefully it, it raises an awareness enough that if you're interested, there's lots of, happily, there's lots of resources. So as bad as the internet is for misinformation, it is still a very good source of information if you know where to look. And so what you really have to do in the modern world is select very carefully is to, if you're reading something, look for various sources, in particular, don't go to your normal echo chamber, look outside of that to see if some claim that's made is really, is really shown to be inconsistent with other things you know to be true about the universe. Uh, as, as one of my favorite statements is, was from the former publisher of the New York Times back when it was a great paper. Um, and uh, uh, he said, um, I like to keep an open mind, but not so open that my brains fall out. So, um, so the idea is, is, yeah, if some idea seems fascinating, check to see if it disagrees with things you know to be true about the universe. And if it does, it's probably not, not right. Uh, but there's a, but use the resources that are available to us. It's amazing to be growing up now and to be have access to the kind of things I never had access to when I was a kid. I, mean, I would that's, go to the library that's a great way to get books. Putting it is you, you look at what you had access to and then the next generation and then, you know, Newton said it best. If I have seen further, it's from standing on the shoulders of giants that, that you were able to stand on the shoulders of giants to see further and further and further. This next generation, however, what I love is what you're doing with your show, The Origins Podcast, is you're having real conversations, raw, uncensored, and you're getting people's perspectives, their own opinions that they've come to in their life to allow you to question, well, what do you believe and ultimately why you believe it? and then finding your fuel to move forward. So where do you find your fuel, Dr. Lawrence? On the tough days, on the hard moments, where's your fuel? Well, sometimes um, sometimes I just look up. <laughs> That's fuel. I mean, where I live now, right now, it's, I can see the Milky Way at night, and it's just spectacular to see it. It's, in, it's enough fuel there. Uh, but I think uh, 
I find, I like to say every day I'm surprised if I'm not surprised. I kind of look to see what the news is in science because I'm often surprised about that. I also, as I said to you earlier, my fuel in some sense comes with concerns about the, about public policy and the way we seeing what's new because every day there are surprising new results you can look at if you read if you scan um, science magazine or even or, or even the popular papers but but the other thing that drives me is I look at, at, at public policy and I get frustrated frankly and and I, I I see misconceptions about the world and and that kind of gives me fuel to try and understand what those misconceptions are and try and counter them and learn about them. For example, I mean, my newest book, The Physics of Climate Change, really began, well, partly began because of the pandemic. I suddenly found myself with time on my hands that I hadn't had before. I was able to, I had eight trips and lectures canceled. I had nothing going on outside the house. For the first time I was able to, normally when I've written books, I've had one or two day jobs at the same time to do it. And this, this way I was able to write a book in 12 weeks that I would have normally taken me 12 months. But, but it was a matter of saying, well, the problem is that this is an issue, a scientific issue that's been politicized, extre extreme misstatements on the right and the left. And so how about trying to explain the fundamental science, which is the precursor to determining public policy that's reasonable? And it was a fascinating challenge for me and an opportunity to say, well, I mean, I'd already learned a lot over the last 12 years. I was chairman of the board of the Bolton Atomic Scientists that, that sets the doomsday clock. And I'd given lectures on a, to a group that I'd taken to Cambodia and Vietnam about climate change, but it was a real chance to learn things and then to be able to say, okay, how can I explain the fundamental science in a way that anyone can understand to see that we can all understand the basis of climate change, understand what the fundamental predictions are and why they're there. And then we can determine policy based on our own, you know, I'm not going to tell you what policies you should do, but, but we should all, no matter what we can debate, as I think Moynihan once said, you can, you know, have your own opinions, but not your own facts. So, Let's start by exploring reality, and then we can, we can use that to, to make the world a better place. So I guess for me, I get excited every day by trying to understand just a little more about the world than I did before, whether it's the political world, the world of humans, or the world of the cosmos. And how do we learn more about you? <laughs> well, um, uh, you, as I say, you can read my books, my, my, you can... Uh, Follow me on Twitter, I guess, L. Kraus one and, and you can learn about science or some of the ideas I'm having, or, or I try and put links there to things I've written, or when we have an Origins podcast uh, uh, or, or, uh, or a public event there. And, um, and I also have a, 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 you know, a webpage, uh, lawrencemkraus.com. Um, I'm easy to find out uh, what I'm doing uh, that way. So the podcast, the, the, the webpage, um, and, and Twitter are, are some ways to do it. And if you're really interested, you can look at the scientific literature and look me up. Thank you again for sharing your story on the Life's Tough podcast. Life's tough. Dr. Kraus, he's tougher. Thanks again, Doc. Okay, you too. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Kraus, again for sharing your story. And to the listeners out there, I challenge you to challenge yourself. What do you believe and why do you believe it? The universe is quite large, yet many of us, while we walk through life and we, we assume, it must revolve around us. Dr. Krauss has said it's amazing to discover that you're wrong. In fact, it's liberating. It's not a threat. It opens your mind. So what do you believe about the universe? What do you believe about your own beginning, your own story? 
Have you been indoctrinated into a belief that you can't, that I'll never be able to? Well, I challenge you as Dr. Dr. Krause has challenged me. Dustin, there are many things in life that you just won't have the answers to, and it's okay to say, I don't know. But when those times come up and those moments, and they will happen in your life, that's the moment where you dig in and you educate yourself and you put yourself around people sometimes that don't always agree with you. Quite frankly, they might come from the opposite side of the world. Thanks again, everybody. Life's tough. You can't be tougher. See you next time.